0: Welcome to the New Books Network. So, hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today we're talking to Dr. Takara Brunson, who is the author of the book Black Women, Citizenship, and the Making of Modern Cuba, published by the University of Florida Press. Dr. Brunson, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Reagan.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for for coming. And I'm really excited to talk about your book. Uh, So I wanted to just begin with the book. uh, The book focuses on Black women and their political and social contributions to the making of what you call modern, the making of modern Cuba. And I just wanted to begin with the question of what led you to studying history and the role of Black women in Cuba's past.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. So I Majored in Comparative Women's Studies at Spelman College. And it was there that I was introduced to Black feminist theory and the concept of the African diaspora. I found that in my courses, I kept coming back to historical questions about how Black women had been represented, about the activist movements that they had participated in. And what I enjoyed most was thinking about Black feminist theory in particular and the, the kinds of activist intellectual traditions that they had developed. And so I decided to first study abroad in Cuba. And because I was going to be spending time there, I, I wanted to write my senior thesis, uh, which looked at Black women's lives in, during the 1959 revolution or following the revolution. And so I carried out a research project with a friend where we interviewed women of African descent living in the island. And as I returned to the US and began to write up that history, I realized that nothing had been written that documented their experiences prior to 1959, at least not in English. And so I began and enrolled in uh, graduate school in a history department at the University of Texas at Austin working with Frank Gritti and kept trying to understand what Black feminist history could look like on the island during the early 20th century. Great.
0: Um, So you focus um, on the time period between 1886 and 1959, as you just said, and how Afro-Cuban women were calling attention to their situation. I think it's so interesting that you said there's, there was nothing written in English um, on, this, you know, on this time period pre-1959 that's so important. And so why did you uh, choose this time period? Um, and, and, but more importantly also, like, what kind of story did you want to tell in the book? Um, what, what did you want to argue about Afro-Cuban women and their contributions?
1: Yeah, yeah. And and just to clarify, what I noticed in English was that nothing had been written historically looking at Black women's political activism. So there were studies that certainly looked at their literary endeavors. There were some work that it looked at cultural representations of women of African descent. But as I engaged the literature, really looking at the historiography, I found that you had these two fields that examined on the one hand, women's activism in pre-revolutionary Cuba or the period that took place between 1902 and 1959. On the other hand, you had this rapidly growing field of scholarship that looked at race and Cuban nationhood. Um, Many of those with many of those studies centering the activism of black men, but yet black women had been left out of both fields. You might see occasional references, but there was really no analysis that talked about the contributions that they were making. I then decided to kind of figure out, think about how I could unify those two fields in order to document what they were doing. Now, while I was conducting dissertation research, I took a, participated in a seminar in Havana and it was there that a black woman historian, Oilda Evia Lanier, multiple times mentioned how it was important that we examine the late 19th century or the immediate post-abolition period in order to understand what Cubans of African descent were doing following the establishment of the Republic in the 20th century. And so thinking about that, as I moved from writing the dissertation into thinking about a book project, I looked at those late 19th century newspapers, notably the magazine Minerva, which was published between 1888 and 1890, just two years after slavery had come to an end. It was in looking at that story or that magazine that I noticed one of the major differences between what Black women were doing in the late 19th century versus the early 20th century was that they were very vocal about anti-Blackness and used magazines, in this case Minerva, to call it out um, pretty consistently. And so it, it shifted how I thought about Cuban history, including Black women's history, because I recognized that something shifted in terms of racial dynamics, but also gender dynamics that led their strategies to change. And so the strategies for me really became the story. And it's why in the book, I focus, as, I focus on practices of citizenship in particular, seeking to understand What what forms of action they take throughout the period of study, why they take those forms of action, and how those forms of action uh, compare with those of their um, white female and black male counterparts in order to get a sense of the broader kind of sociocultural dynamics within Cuban political communities. Mm -hmm. so
0: going off of that, of what you just said, um, I wanted to talk about these larger racial and gender dynamics that they're uh, that they're confronting or encountering. And so it seemed like uh, people of African descent during that time period uh, that you examine are economically and educationally marginalized. And the women that you focus on, um, they're calling for you know more economic activity. Opportunity and more educational opportunity, but they're doing this as they're they're navigating these issues of patriarchy and racelessness um, as they you know try to pursue these rights for black people and black women. So I wondered if you could explain how patriarchy and racelessness were functioning at that time that you that you focus on.
1: Yeah, yeah. So for those unfamiliar with Cuban history, during the 19th century, the 30-year independence movement um, is shaped by this mission in which the political leaders uh, assert their intention to create an independent nation in which all men will be racial equals, right? Um, Really, this transracial fraternity becomes foundational to how Cubans will understand themselves in the 20th century. As a result, um, Black men as well as women, but especially Black men, play a critical role through the military in helping to achieve independence. Yet, as scholars have demonstrated, once Cuba establishes itself as a republic in 1902, Cubans of African descent, including Black male veterans, face racism in employment, in education. They are disrespected publicly, oftentimes mocked by white elites. And one of the ways that they respond to that is to appeal to these dominant ideas of masculinity. Indeed, as scholars like Bonnie Lucero have demonstrated, um, masculinity becomes this racially coded language in which political elites who are white can proclaim that everybody is equal. The constitution has granted men of all races equal rights, including suffrage. Um, And so any issues that black people continue to confront is really uh, due to their own failures. At the same time, they use this gendered rhetoric to insist that black men and women are lacking because they haven't been able to fulfill these dominant expectations of what is Um, proper Cuban um, femininity and masculinity. And that really shapes the context in which Black men and especially Black Cuban women seek to navigate public life, right? Um, Oftentimes they will encounter a backlash when they choose to call out racism because it's seen as divisive, as undermining the national project. And yet by appealing to ideas of what a proper Cuban woman is supposed to be, whether it be through dress, whether it be through seeking an education, taking on certain jobs, they are able to push back against these ideas of black racial inferiority. And so in that sense, patriarchy and racelessness are absolutely intertwined with patriarchy giving black women a path towards demonstrating their merits for social integration and the right to have um, opportunities that are equal to those of their white female counterparts.
0: And so, as you said earlier, you wanted to focus on the different strategies that, that black women deployed in their calling for racial rights. And, and so you focus on these strategies where they, that they used to also protest their conditions. And one of the strategies you focus on is comportment, which enabled them to navigate patriarchy and racelessness, as you just, uh, as you just explained, Um, So how did women display their comportment and how was this a strategy for Black advancement?
1: Yes. So when I was researching the project, one of the things I found is that there were all these fragments in the Black press in which you certainly had articles where women were writing essays, poetry, but more frequently there were these social columns in which editors would just... Document the activities that they had engaged in. And also, frequently, there were images of Black women all over the press. And especially during the early 1900s and 1910s, male editors of Black magazines featured women as the covered images, right? And photographic portraiture in particular. And seeking to make sense of like, how I could piece these different fragments together, I started thinking about comportment. So, not just the fact that editors took these images and published them or that the women would have approved and submitted their images to be published throughout the magazines and especially on the covers, but also reading those, those photographs, thinking uh, about the work of figures like Sean Michelle Smith, uh, Deborah Willis, Tina Camp, um, in order to understand like the process of creating an image. So the fact that they chose to sit for a photograph that they likely would have wanted created to document a particular moment in their lives, to circulate among family members and friends, to read those photographs, to think about um, them fashioning themselves in a particular light as, again, respectable women through the clothing that they chose, what the clothing might have suggested about either um, how they carried out their daily lives or what they aspired to, in the case that they may have rented that clothing, and also how they engaged in contemporary consumer practices. I then connected what I, I envisioned was taking place in the process of creating these photographs with all of their activities. And what I realized that comportment was essential not just to creating a physical image that could be published or circulated, but also just how they navigated daily life, the types of activities that they engaged in, whether it be Becoming married and then announcing that, whether it be choosing to establish certain types of organizations that would have been approved of by other Black elites, whether it be obtaining it in, in education. Um, also in that way, um, we, see, we see how Black women contributed to Black socio-political activism in ways that had been traditionally overlooked or perhaps referenced, but not um, really theorized. Mm -hmm. And so um,
0: by the 1940s, black women are founding their own civic clubs. And as you said uh, previously, you were looking at the black press And with the issue of comportment and it seemed like, you know, black male editors were including the women in the images, in the papers in this way. But then by the 1940s, it seems like women are founding their own organizations. And this seems to coincide, as you write, with the 1940s Constitution and expanded rights. So I wondered what black women were doing um, in their own organizations to uplift the black population.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, this is another one of the questions that I had and thinking about archival fragments, because really, the majority of the organizations that I found were in the eastern part of the island, especially in the city of Santiago de Cuba. And really, all that we have evidence of were the names, um, the mission statements that included the bylaws, and then occasionally, the Black press or um, Black social columns of regional presses would mention some of their activities. What I found significant about these organizations was um, in comparison to earlier organizations that had been established, many of which um, commemorated Black male war veterans from the 19th century, or even intellectuals from the late 19th and early 20th century. Those that appear during the 1940s commemorated notable Black women, some of whom participated in the revolutionary movement of the 19th century, others whom uh, were well-respected Black women, educators, lawyers, and intellectuals. And so in terms of activities, what I was able to get a sense of was that um, some of these organizations were arts organizations, um, others focused on social welfare, so some of them might have included Organizing literacy campaigns, um, trying to create a pipeline for poor Black women and children to enroll in school, to establish libraries, to do fundraisers for them, um, as well as the occasional public commemorations, like really creating spaces in which Black women could celebrate other Black women, um, both who had passed on, but then also those who were elders. And their community.
0: Mm-hmm. And so by the end of the book, uh, you focus on black women in the communist party and the communist party seems to offer a real political platform for black women as, as you write the first black woman who was elected to polit- political office came through the communist party. Um, and it seems like they're gaining political traction through these uh, maybe more formalized within the um, political spectrum uh, positions, and uh, so I, I wondered, what are they advocating for in the in the Communist Party, and and how are they faring uh, in the Communist Party? Is it is it a space for them to be able to to push forward their their causes, or uh, like what's what's going on with that with with them in the Communist Party?
1: Yes, yes, the Communist Party becomes recognized during the late 1930s and, and especially um, during the late early 1940s as a party that is committed to advancing the interest of laboring Black Cubans, especially poor Black Cubans. This is in part because of the labor leaders who who's, um, who they center in developing their campaigns as well as the issues that they promote. What is significant is that many of their members, their visible supporters at a lot of their rallies who attend their conferences, who support their newspapers, include women of African descent. And really they're able to bring in black women from various class backgrounds, but especially those who are part of the laboring poor in both urban and rural areas, um, because of how the party on one hand supports their interests, but then on the other hand supports their leadership in the organization, really more so than other national parties and even a lot of Black civic organizations. So you have figures like Esperanza Sanchez, who hails from the eastern part of the island. She becomes active in the communist and and women's movement during the 1930s and she helped to write the 1940 Constitution, right? She's elected to that, that Constitutional Assembly, and she proposes some of the articles that make it into the Constitution. Following the ratification of that Constitution, she's actually elected to Congress. And as I described in the book, she really is representative of a much broader community of women who enter into the party at all levels as leaders and supporters. So you have women selling magazines, communist magazines in their local neighborhoods. You have women running for office in their various cities and municipalities. And then you have the occasional figure like Sanchez, who is elected to national um, office. What these women um, are able to accomplish is, is really amazing. So they are, of course, focused on labor issues most of these women support a broad idea of Cuban womanhood in which they, of course, acknowledge the heterogeneity of, um, of, of women as a constituency, um, consistently highlighting that they are unifying women who are both Black and white, who are from urban and rural communities, who work in factories as domestics, as professionals who are also housewives. But then they use the party to... Um, achieve um, labor legislation. They push the government to create a clause that will reinforce the um, anti-discrimination article of the 1940 constitution in order to help hold people accountable for discriminating against women in the workforce. You have women across the island who mobilize each other in voting for the communist party. And those women do so because they see the successes of party leaders in improving working conditions through strikes and protests, in achieving higher wages, as well as critiquing the government's support for World War II, which they argue is imperialist and has undermined the development of Cuba's national economy during the 1940s. So they're, they're just so many different ways that Black women are able to participate in the Communist Party in comparison with other political parties and movements during the period. And it's really just fascinating because this is where I see um, Black women making some of the most important material gains to address their daily concerns. So
0: throughout the book, you seem to chart this Change over time with Afro-Cuban women's organizing, um, in which they begin working through these civic organizations, but that are that are led by men, and then they eventually lo- join the larger women's movement, found their own organizations, and as you just ended, uh, really achieve these political gains through the Communist Party. Um, and at the end of the book, you mention. That the embrace of patriarchy may have also hindered Black women's um, activism as well, and so I just I just wondered um, how you see the trajectory of activism that you study in the book, and how you're thinking about the challenges and the achievements that Afro-Cuban women's uh, activism uh, encountered and and gained at that
1: time. Yeah, yeah. So I think the the transition or trajectory that you just outlined is spot on. What I would add to it is it in part reflects the sources that I chose to examine for the period. And so looking at women's um, organizations that are establishing in the late 19th century, the magazines that they publish, co-found, write for, reflect their contributions to a Black public sphere. And as a tradition evolves, what Um, happens in terms of the the activist tradition I'm thinking about really demonstrates the activities of a primarily elite and upwardly mobile um, community of women whose activism in some way differs from those of other women of the laboring poor who I reference, but I think it's a different study, but it's important to acknowledge that there are those who remain active in the labor movement. That group of elite And um, upperly mobile women who I focus on absolutely rely on Black male-headed institutions, especially following the establishment of the Republic in 1902, to advance their issues, to gain access to jobs, to help um, gain access to schools, to establish schools, as well as to push for um, changes in the legal system that will lead them to be able to vote as well. The, the next major shift that takes place begins by the late, teen, late um, 1920s in which that same group of Black women increasingly engages the national women's movement and in doing so in, uh, begins to collaborate with middle class and elite white feminist leaders entering into their organizations, Establishing organizations together that reflect a variety of political perspectives and goals, as well as helping to organize national women's congresses. And it's through those collaborations that the elite and upwardly mobile women whose work I've been tracing come back into contact um, with laboring or Black women of the laboring poor really shifting from having established social welfare organizations um, that would help serve them to working alongside them, right? And and, in doing so, continue to develop this, this tradition that helps to elevate them as national leaders. What I find interesting and what I talk about in the book is that by the 1930s, you have Black women from a range of class backgrounds, who are nationally visible as political leaders, primarily through their work in national women's organizations, increasingly taking on leadership positions in black civic clubs and on occasion, national political parties. Um, But it's really only the Communist Party that continues to support women's formal political leadership on the scale that the Communist Party did. However, in both the Communist Party and some of the more traditional or like moderate reformist organizations that I look at, in both cases, you have women um, engaging in activism through like women's groups, and so in that sense, I argue that um, even though the the nation has evolved to accept women's formal pol- political participation, it rarely translates into women having political power on a national scale. And that's because of the persistence of patriarchal gender norms. Patriarchy allows women an entry into public debate and the ability to establish organizations, especially when they assert that they're doing so as wives and especially as mothers. But it also um, helps to maintain these ideas that women have particular issues that they should be focused on and that the remaining issues should primarily be left to men. Wow, that's really that's really interesting. Um, so
0: throughout the book, you uh, focus on you know particular women, um, and you you know you include photographs of them, you you know describe them and their activities. And, you know, you really give us a great um, kind of picture of of these different individual women um, within the arc of the of the larger, you know, group of black women's activism. And so I wondered if you could meet uh, one of these women today, mm-hmm. um, who would you choose to meet and and why?
1: Oh, man. Um, <laughs> so I, I love I love this question. I cannot pick one. So if I can just offer two, but really quickly. Sure. I opened the book with the story of Maria Dama who to me is so fascinating because she left behind the most comprehensive archive of any of the women who I talk about. So as I mentioned um, in the introduction, one of the challenges was that it was hard to find biographical data on many of the women from the study. And yet Dama if you travel to the library in central Cuba, where she was from, you find... Um, pamphlets from some of the organizations that she was a part of one of the pamphlets included a speech that she offered it included various um, magazine or um, photographs that she had taken as well as two different magazines that she self-published from her own press that she developed and then she used that press as a way to train poor children which was a part of a school that she had founded on top of that, she was also an internationally um, renowned poet. So it's just like thinking about all the different communities that she was a part of. That she did all this as a as a woman who was orphaned as a young child, and how she created this really dynamic, like activist intellectual tradition that um, overlaps so much of what I talked about through throughout the study. I would just love to hear more about what it was like to be doing this as a woman during a period in which very few women took on these activities that were like so nuanced, um, especially for black women, right. Who came from poor black backgrounds. And on the other hand, I would love to meet Anand Chagoyan who was from Havana or outside of Havana and then migrates there becomes the first black woman professor at the university of Havana. But as I, realized in having conversations with Black women in Havana just, you know, within the past like five, 10 years, there was so much more that she did beyond just her work as an educator as well as a civic activist. She also helped to create pipelines to bring poor Black children into local schools, including the the Oblate Sisters of Providence, this U.S.-based Catholic sisterhood that had missions in Cuba. So, you know, I just think with both women, I would just love to hear their personal stories, which can help fill out this narrative in ways that the the current archive doesn't really allow for.
0: So, in in talking um, with you, you've been kind of sharing with us these uh, archival finds that that you use to put together the the stories that you tell in the book, and I wondered, um, and and you. In the book, you list the different archives that you visited. They were in both Cuba and the United States, and I just wondered if it was particularly challenging finding Black women in the archives, um, usually given the unequal circumstances that they faced, and mm. if you found any other, uh, if you had any other archival findings that you found like particularly intriguing or that were of particular interest to you, or or even surprising um, when you were there.
1: Yes. I think so I when I first started began my archival research in Cuba I followed the footnotes of the historians who had already been looking at uh, Cuban national politics whether it was approaching it to understand the women's movement or to think about evolving racial ideologies and black political activism What I found was that despite assumptions that some historians have made, which was that there weren't really enough sources to understand black women were what black women were doing, was that black women were actually ever everywhere. And in that sense, I was actually kind of overwhelmed. You know, like you you read these black presses, and again, women are publishing poetry, they're doing social columns, they're publishing fashion columns, occasionally editorials, they have their own feminist columns. They're engaging in debates with Black men. Um, And so really the challenge was then to figure out like how to craft that into a narrative. And so one of the next steps that I took was to move into the women's movement and to try and figure out if I could take any of the names from the kind of Black civic activists and political spaces and find them in the women's movement, in which case I did. But then I also found other women of African descent. And then I did the same thing in terms of the communist movement. And that way I began to demonstrate and analyze how they were moving between these various communities, but also to understand, um, what they were doing in terms of their strategies, some of the successes in shaping what was taking place in these various movements, um, But then still questioning what was going on in terms of their personal biographies. One of the sources that I found most fascinating was um, recommended to me by Rebecca Scott, historian Rebecca Scott, who I encountered in the National Archive in Havana. And she said, hey, by the way, there's some letters in which women are appealing to politicians, or pensions that they believed their, their husbands and fathers and brothers had earned fighting in the independence movement. And so I literally went um, and began pulling out the catalogs for this particular um, collection of letters. Most of the letters had been written to the Black politician Juan Alberto Gomez and wrote down every single feminine name that I could find requested them over the courses of months where I would just go sit there for hours um, and then read them five at a time. And it was there that I was able to begin piecing together some of the more emotional aspects of being Black and a woman in Cuba during the late 19th and especially the early 20th century. So that particular um, collection included women talking about their pride and and being women of African descent, how they saw themselves and contributing to a goal of personal and collective advancement as African descendants. There were cases in which some aspired to attend, say, Tuskegee Institute, now Tuskegee University in the United States. And then also talking about some of the frustrations that they encountered being Black women who recognized that they were being discriminated against in their um, their various fields of employment, seeking jobs as typists, seeking to be respected as teachers, as well as trying to get their children into some of the local schools and, and acknowledging how some of the, the exams that they had to take could be discriminatory. And so um, I think really what I'm trying to point out is that there are kind of everywhere, but the, the way that the archives, especially on the island have been constructed, is sometimes there are walls you hit in trying to figure out what's going on. And so I hope, you know, moving forward, as I and other historians return to some of these questions that will increasingly use oral histories to kind of fill out some of those stories, to get more biographies, to think about historical memory, to think about how people lived as communities, some of the forms of social or civic engagement that women took on that aren't always documented in formal archives.
0: Yeah, I always find that so interesting to hear about how people found their sources and followed these trails um, mm-hmm. throughout, the, throughout the archives. Um, and then that's so interesting, too, to think about, you know, the other people who, you know, point, point you in a direction and what they found. Um, it's really uh, important to guys think about this as research communities as well pursuing these yeah. questions. Um, and so I guess that also takes us maybe more to contemporary times when you were talking about uh, oral histories and uh, and I was wondering about how you look at I guess the legacy um, of this of your research today. Where I, I was thinking, you know, I'm sure times have changed and that you know time has passed. And, you know, Cubans might find themselves in some somewhat different conditions, but some maybe forms of the racial and gender discrimination and inequality, uh, they might, you know, persist. And so I wondered um, how you saw the legacy of these women that you work on um, and their protests in in today or in more recent times in Cuba.
1: Yeah, yeah. I've So I'm really inspired by certainly the work of Black women as artists. So thinking about um, like writers like Nancy Mordejón who've ho- helped to push for a conversation about Blackness, about Cuban fem- femininity, especially about Black femininity and, as being integral to, to Cuban identity with those writers and even visual artists serving as activists to kind of drive forward a narrative and to challenge some of the anti-Black gendered conversations that have persisted on the island. I've also been inspired, and Devin Spence Benson has written about this, but the work of the afro Collective based in Havana, which includes Black women who've come together similar to some of the women um, organizing during the, the early 20th century, but to establish a group in which they could come and talk about their concerns in which they could use that as a way to support each other, um, but also to educate the community. So to have conversations about how black men and women continue to be represented in the Cuban media and some of the limitations of those representations. It also includes promoting pride and like black women's beauty, talking about things like black women's natural hair, um, and having conversations that can be transnational. What I also love about the Afro-Cubanos Collective is uh, you see that the women in that community, many of them have been integral to building what I consider to be a field of, or contemporary field of Black women's studies in which they've assembled archival records and including some of those that I consult in my own work, but then also essays in which they theorize Black women's experiences historically within contemporary society, thinking sociologically, thinking about popular culture, thinking about religion, and so forth. And again, what what I see them doing is um, taking national narratives and trying to assert their place in a way that gives them dignity, that challenges anti-Blackness, that challenges, um, the ways that patriarchy and anti-Blackness can overlap, right? And and for that to be its own sort of um, liberatory project. And then I'd also add the, um, just in thinking about documenting Black women's history is beyond the work of Black women engaging in traditional histories includes that of um, filmmaker Gloria Rolando, who's just, you know, her her body of work is just amazing and thinking about Black identity diasporically. But some of her more contemporary projects have looked at Black women's experiences during the early 20th century, as well as um, she's currently working, one of her current projects, looks at the Oblate sisters in Cuba and the work that they did. And so, you know, it's just... There are all sorts of movements on the island that I think um, reflect Black women's desires to document their histories in ways similar to the women that I study in my book. But it also shows how those efforts are, um, unto themselves, forms of activism that are really important for, for um, shifting national public understandings of, of Black women's place in society, in Cuban society.
0: Mm-hmm. So you've written uh, this compelling book, and which I really enjoyed reading Thank as you. well. And I found the the women in the book and the you know the the stories about them just to be so so rich and uh, demonstrative of what you said. These attempts to shift these narratives about Black women in Cuba. And and so I wanted to end with um, if you have any what you're working on now or if you have any uh, projects that you're thinking about in the future um, that you're that you're uh, that are on the horizon um, uh, now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I so I'm kind of all over the place in the sense that there are all these like unresolved questions related to Black women's experiences historically in Cuba from their experiences in particular neighborhoods, thinking about how the lives of poor Black women compared to those of like the, the primarily professional, upwardly mobile women who I talk about. In the book, I'm interested in like mapping Black women's experiences um, and so forth. But then I've also really been thinking more so about photography and the ways that we can use photography to understand Black identity in Cuba, as well as throughout Latin America. So um, right now I've begun working on a new project that looks at four different photographic archives that feature images created by Cubans of African descent. One includes a black intellectual who published a series of um, what I describe as political albums at the turn of the 20th century. And he is one of the first black figures who I saw to really use photographic portraiture to help demonstrate um, or to help buttress his, his political mission of writing. So using image alongside text. And this is a visual strategy that he replicates in a newspaper that he Publishes following the establishment of the Republic. Then I'm also looking at um, the photographs from the Oblate Sisters of Providence archive that's outside of Baltimore, thinking about that alongside the images of um, F Af- or Black poetry performer Eusebio Cosme from the 1930s and into the 1940s, as well as some women who migrate from the island to Cuba, first to New York City, and then they settle in in Chicago. Which I love about their photographs is that when you think not just about what's going on in the photograph, but also how I was even able to access their images, I realized that the, the theme that ran throughout or that connected them all was they reflect this movement between the United States and Cuba in which some of the actual images that they're producing they're producing in the. US, Some of the images they're producing they're producing um, as a result of encounters that they've had with black Americans. So the you know the Oblate Sisters of Providence, really being a transnational project that is led especially by black American women, but that you know again was founded by a Cuban woman, but that includes black women coming from all over the diaspora. And the case of the two sisters, I encountered them through the black press. So they're in like the Chicago Defender. They're in New York, Amsterdam. They're appearing like hanging out with other students from Howard. So there's a whole other story to be told there by relying on photographs and and using those images um, that tell a story that I I wouldn't have been able to tell just using traditional um, kind of like textual sources. Beyond that, I've again been thinking about photographs throughout Latin America that feature women of African descent. Um, There are so many images I think we're familiar with that show African descendants, including women um, as subjects. Oftentimes those that were taken by foreigners who came in and tried to kind of like survey the land during periods of transition that were engaging in um, more like ethnographic work. Really what I'm interested in doing is kind of flipping that and asking what kind of pictures Black women chose to sit for themselves, why, how they were using photography as a visual medium, and then what other kinds of stories we could tell possibly as it relates to citizenship, but also thinking beyond the state. So the types of communities that they're engaging in, the ways they choose to fashion their identities, and the circulation of of those images. So those those are the two major projects I'm thinking of. which continue to build on some of the questions that I ask in, the, in the, the book.
0: That sounds really great. And I love this focus on black visual culture. And so I will definitely also be on the lookout for what you're going to, to produce in the future. Um, so I've been speaking with Dr. Takara Brunson, the author of Black Women, Citizenship and the Making of Modern Cuba, published by the University of Florida Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and thanks for sharing it with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you again.